BibleGateway.com. Oh. Well, I got other Bible programs. I just like accordance. So. Alrighty, me so, too. Let's start with the prayer here. May be your will, and I, my God, that a mishap not come after me. May I not stumble in a matter of law and cause my colleagues to rejoice over us. Excuse me. And may we not say regarding something that is to me that is to whore, and not regarding something that is just to whore that it is to me. May our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and we rejoice over them. For out of I grant wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Unveil my eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. Pardon me, I'm a little very Oh, okay. Why don't, you, why don't you come a little closer? Oh, there we go. Yeah, we have plenty of room here. There we go, yeah. There we are. So, um... Yeah. And looking at the Sermon on the Mount, of course, that is one of the most beloved sermons of Yeshua, and um, probably one of the most iconic sermons in Christianity, uh, except for possibly Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. <laughs> Unlike Jonathan Edwards, however, I think that um, in studying the Sermon on the Mount, that it's impossible to truly understand what Yeshua is trying to say without Judaism. That, um, and, and that actually, I think, runs counter to the arguments you would hear from Judaism a lot of times about Yeshua, which is that he's incompatible with their faith. Um, I think on the flip side, Yeshua is um, part and parcel of Judaism, and I think the Sermon on the Mount fits in, uh, not only in, in what he's actually teaching, his concepts, but also style, um, and even potentially, I think, has uh, the capability to be used for uh, midrashing, commentary, that kind of thing. So that basically, I think that as you look at the Sermon on the Mount, what we're seeing is a epic three-chapter sermon from an incredible Jewish sage. He's not just a religious Jew. Yeshua represents <clears throat> a brilliant theologian uh, and ethical uh, discourse person uh, in this particular case. So I really want to try like, I hope with this little course we're going to do for the next five weeks, we'll hope, we'll try to get you to see Yeshua in the context of Chazal. Above Chazal, but in the context of Chazal. He's not just a Jewish guy. He is a Jewish sage. Yes, sir? Just, just that I'm, I get it, and for whoever else, but what do you mean when you say Judaism? Because that's a big statement to say, impossible to understand the Sermon on the Mount. Without without the context of Judaism, what do you mean? Well, I think that? first off, I'm taking a um, I'm taking more of a Jewish uh, teaching perspective, so it's definitely not so. I mean, it, it is orthodox in the sense that most of the rest of Jewish teachers are orthodox, but at the same time, as the classic ones are obviously. Um, uh, but within that context, uh, it's more the idea of I'm thinking of Jewish culture. I'm thinking of Jewish parables, well, of Jewish imagery, idioms, and yeah. t and teachings. You're, ju you're juxtaposing it against Christianity, right? Correct. If you just gotcha. read the New Testament like you're reading a magazine, Matthew Henry, yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. So my point is that um, throughout the last two thousand years, most people on the Christian side of the fence have been looking at Yeshua through the eyes of Paul, when they really should be looking at Yeshua through, well, kind of through Paul, but not through their Paul. Um, through the eyes of Rashi, through the eyes of Ramkal, you know, like, Hello. because, yeah, Hillel, because he makes more sense and his words have more power in that um, literary, historical, and theological construct. So it's not so much that I'm picking a specific brand of Judaism, it's just more kind of generic. And I'm going to try and do that as we go. We're going to, as we, we're going to, the idea in this is I, I'm not going to Judaism and the Tanakh to verify Yeshua, to say somehow like his words are iffy and we're gonna, but we're gonna check him against other people. 
more the idea to see how he fits in to emphasize that he's part of this narrative. So um, in looking at that, one of the things I first want to do is set up some of the historical context um, for this, for his Sermon on the Mount. Yes, sir. Just before you get into the historical context, and then on, the, on the discussion of Judaism, it's if, if you treat Judaism as a religion, um, which is what most people say when they say Judaism, they're saying a religion, then it falls under the, it falls under the uh, requirements that those that are in charge of the religion define it. Mm. In other words, uh, who, who defines Christianity? Well, it's not people in, in, in India, Buddhists, that say, you know, Christians believe such and such. And it's like, how dare you? We believe what we say we believe. And this is the problem is that when you define Judaism as a religion and a religion alone, then essentially we, we have no say. We can't say what Judaism believes because we're not, we're not in Judaism in that, in that, in that regard. Mm, That's yeah. the fallacy of using the word Judaism. On the, on the other side, what else can you say? Right. Like Jewishness? Well, it's right. not an ethnicity. Right. Right. I mean, it is an ethnicity, but we're not talking about an ethnicity. What we're talking about is the Bible, yeah. Scripture. Mm-hmm. So, or even I would culture. define, or the culture. Well, that's what I'm saying. But the culture is that's the problem. Scripture doesn't stand alone; it stands alone within the context of the people right. of Israel. So, what I would, how I would define Judaism, is not necessarily the way that Judaism would define Judaism. I would define Judaism as the people of Israel with the Bible as, or the the Bible with the people of Israel as the context. Hmm. So. That makes sense. Is Yeshua part of Judaism? Yeah. How could he not? Be? How could he not be? He's right. Jewish. And he was He's there. in the Bible. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Right. Um, but again, an example is reincarnation. Not a part of Judaism. Just not. But every Jew out there will tell you, yeah, reincarnation's a part of Judaism. Really? Show me. Please show me. Well, and they'll they'll show you all sorts of stuff, but they won't show you anything in the Bible. Or even the Talmud. Well, they will, but they can't make it stick. <laughs> so it's all, it's all, a, it's all, the construct is Judaism has redefined itself to include these theological points, mm-hmm. which could or could be right. The problem is that it's all what they define it as, yeah. as opposed to what does the Bible say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as we're getting, we're going to try to go back to the source here, um, go back in time. That also helps to set up a little bit of the discussion about, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. One of the complaints that I've heard against Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount and Yeshua's teachings in general is that they're not particularly halakhic. You don't get any, what do you do with this stuff? Like, I want to know how to keep Shabbat. I want to know, like, can I eat that? Can I not eat that? What do I do about, you know, insert X? And Yeshua doesn't really comment much on that. But I think there's an important reason for that. Um, and I'm going to start off with some historical context. So we got the Zugot, which you've taught us is in this corner over here. Um, and they, it's the pairs, the two, the zugot or pairs of teachers that would sort of match up along the way. Um, and the last two, of course, we've got Hillel and Shammai. Um, that was my handwriting is atrocious. So, would you get the point? Shemu. Yeah, Shammai. The whale. Shammai is uh, are the last two pairs. And they're at the end of the stage, and after them, I believe it's the Tanaim, correct? Tanaim. Tanaim, excuse me. So they uh, are famous because they are debating. They're discussing each other. What's incredible, though, is if you actually start to study this, you find out that they don't actually have that many disagreements. They have general themes that are kind of disagreed, but really, 
where the division emerges is in their students. So when you go down to a little while later, and they're commenting on this, we've got in Sanhedrin, We read this. After there were many Talmudim of Hillel and Shammai that did not learn enough from the Rabbayim, many arguments arose as if they were two different Torot in Israel. So the point of that is to say that, um, according to the Talmud, there's like division like you can't even believe, and that's within Pharisaic Judaism. That's not counting the fact that the Sadducees are off in their own little world with no world to come. That's not counting the fact that the Essenes have literally left the world and are off in their own little, you know, tucked away corner in the middle of nowhere, trying to pretend like they don't know anybody else. Um, even within the most cohesive group, you have rampant division. So the first point that I want to say is that Yeshua's teachings come in the context of that. It makes some sense not to really dip, delve into the halakhic disputes. I mean, he'd be throwing his voice into a pile of a whole slew of stuff. I mean, half the people would automatically disagree with him, and the other half the people would be confused, and then another, I mean, it would be a mess. So understanding that he doesn't really want to comment on that, I think makes some sense. He's not wasting his time. He's only got a few years here to make a point. More importantly, though, the division is emblematic of a bigger problem. Because during the first century, as you guys know, the primary sin, so to speak, of Israel was baseless hatred. According to the sages, this baseless hatred is what ultimately destroys the temple. God destroys the temple not because people of Israel commit idolatry. They're actually keeping all the rules really well. Their problem is baseless hatred. They have issues with each other. So when you look at Yeshua's teachings, he's almost, almost exclusively focusing on areas of, his, of hypocrisy or interpersonal relationships that deal with this baseless hatred issue. In fact, even in his halakhic discussions about things like Shabbat and healing on Shabbat, where then you can pick grain on Shabbat and so on and so forth, he actually doesn't really comment that strictly on the halakhic nature of the dispute. He disagrees with the Pharisees, but the way that he does it almost implies his bigger issue was not with what they said, but with how they said it and when they said it. In other words, if they had come to him in an honest discussion and said, so I think personally it should be this way, what do you think? He might have actually agreed with them or said, that's fair enough, whatever. But the way that they do it, hey, your disciples are doing X, you can't do that. And she was like, whoa, chill out here, because this is the problem. So as we study the Sermon on the Mount, keep baseless hatred in the back of your mind, because a lot of his discussion, a lot of his context, is going to be centered around that issue. And that's one reason why his teachings are less halakhic and more ethics-based, because he's trying to work with the biggest problem of his day, as opposed to trying to settle disputes that we're going to rage for the next 400 years. And you may address this, but another reason it may have not been as halakhic is because, because the, uh, the melu at the time was not into the halakhic discussions. Mm -hmm. They would make the halakhic discussions, but the disputes or whatever, all of the comments, because you said Hillel and Shammai didn't have many disagreements, because their statements, what they said, what they taught, was ethical. Mm. If you read, if you read for Kavot, there's hardly any halakhic discussion. It's True. all ethical, right. and it's very similar to this, where it's, he's actually they're, they're actually addressing things that are heart issues mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to uh, action issues. I really like the fact that you brought the Perkei vote because that gets us to our second part of the it's context, like, which is literary. 
So if you look at Yeshua's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, you're actually going to see several um, patterns emerge that remind you of uh, other Jewish teachings, especially from that time period. And Perkei Avot is an excellent example. Um, if you look at the Perkei Avot, one of the other complaints I've heard against Yeshua's teachings is he didn't write Mesalat Yasharim. His longest single chunk of teaching is what we're studying over the next five weeks, and it's only three chapters long, and it's not even a cohesive central topic, although I think he has a theme. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, so most people, or some, I've heard some people complain and say, look, I learned way more from Roncal than I ever learned from Yeshua because, well, Roncal wrote a book. Yeshua was packing it into a handful of sermons. But the funny part is, that's actually totally normal for this time period. The book writing stuff, that's new. That's really new. Prior to like, you know, we talked like Rashi's doing commentary on the entire scripture. But much before that, basically all of the teachings are that way. They're short little paragraphs, maybe a couple pages. They're almost always focused on one central point, and that's it. They don't, they don't go into a lot of detail. Not only that, but they didn't write hardly anything down. Everything was orally, orally teaching. In fact, Yeshua, should be pointed out, didn't write anything down himself. Everything is oral. Like Nachman, it's all being repeated by his disciples, right. and they're the ones writing it down. So in the, case of, um, in the case of Yeshua, I think that he makes a lot more sense in the style of his day. And when you try to compare him to teachers who were the last couple hundred years, it's really not a fair comparison at all, and it's not really a healthy one, because it's a different pattern, a different style. Um, another quick thing about the patterns as well, if you look at the Perkei vote, we're going to study the Beatitudes in a second as kind of a way to get started in the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are almost poetic in their balance. Blessed are the this, for they shall. Blessed are the this, for they shall. If you've read the Perkei Avot, that style is replete, especially through towards the end of the Perkei Avot. There are five things that God loves, and they are this, 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 and this. And there are five things that are supported by those five things, and they are this, 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 and this. And he goes over and over and over again with the same number pattern, the same sequence. And sometimes these are really long. You think to yourself, why are we even talking about all these? I know there were nine. Um, but it's, it's partly because it's a mnemonic to help you remember stuff. You have it, you, it's much easier to say there are five things the Lord hates, you know, I, wicked eye, so on and so forth, right? As opposed to saying, okay, let me think. Well, God hates this. What else does He hate? How many were there again? You know, so you got a blessed are, blessed are. One of the easiest passages in Scripture to memorize. Very short, very simple. It's a smart device, and it's very Jewish in terms of style. Is there? Well, it's not just it's not just the style of the day. It's true with any human endeavor. We start simple and get complex. The Constitution, uh, if you print it all out, may take three pages. You know, you know the the abominations that we call U.S. law today take you know thousands and thousands Roots. of pages to define one thing. You know, it's absurd. But what we have to understand is it's it's there's a simple concept, and that is building blocks. Mm -hmm. uh, you may have million bricks in a giant building but refining and knowing how to make that one brick and then multiplying it by a million times is the key. What we find in early teachings, Hillel, Shammai most certainly Yeshua is we find building blocks. Mm -hmm. They become the building blocks that that all these people that think they're really smart can build complex theologies or whatever else out but they had to have the building right. block to start with. In fact, speaking of Ramkal, having read Mesela Yisharim about about 60% or more is quotes. He's not even, even original on all of it. He admits that. Yeah, of he course. Says, He's saying this is stuff everybody already knows. The point being is that like 
a lot of the modern, um, bigger book-style teaching is all based, as you said, on that initial run. Plus, again, we want to get back to Yeshua is trying to make a couple of points. He's got three years to do it. He is trying to really resonate on a couple of issues that are threatening the survival of Israel. Baseless hatred and hypocrisy. That's his focus. And if you look at it, if you want to be a man whose words are remembered, it's best to be a man of few words. He doesn't say a whole lot, but people remember what he said. So Sermon on the Mount is his longest one. And, um, and I want to also just real quick before we get started to help kind of overlay a context of the, of the sermon itself and talk about themes. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, there is a general theme for the entire sermon. And then there are many themes that sort of fit within that that section out the different uh, portions of the sermon. So random ideas. What are some thoughts for a theme for the Sermon on the Mount? Summarize it in a sentence or a phrase. How to treat other people. Okay, very good. Discipleship. Is that very good? It's talking about all of five through seven. Five through seven. Five, Matthew five, six, and seven. Faith. Okay, yeah. Just trust in Hashem in general. Right? The proper relationship between people and Hashem. Very good. I like He's that. He's the king. Yeah, that's very good. If you, um, if you want to go cheesy, you could say the heart of the matter. If you want to go more classic, you can say it's not what you say, but you do. But the point is, um, all of that's really good. And yeah, I think the, the thrust of it is proper service to God. What does it really look like? And really, so if you break it down, the sections of it are focused on the different elements of what that is and how it really works. Like, not just what looks good, not just what sounds good, but like the really, truly righteous people, what do they do? So chapter 5, uh, and this is incredible. The monks sometimes totally ruin our ability to understand the scripture by the way they break up chapters. But in the Sermon on the Mount, they did a pretty good job. So chapter 5, we, of course, we start with the Beatitudes, but the Beatitudes are also part of a general theme for that whole chapter, which really, if I could summarize it, would be something like, uh, what looks good isn't good enough. So that's chapter 5. Looks good. Not enough. And he really, Yeshua really hits on hypocrisy. He really hits on these things. You've heard it said this. You think to himself, yeah, pretty good. I don't do that. And he goes, I didn't think about it this way. Oh, I do that all the time. Okay, so that's chapter five. Chapter six is really two themes. The first part of chapter six uh, focuses primarily on uh, basically don't cheat yourself of the reward um, and true reward. So he's got the issue of showing off. Uh, throughout Judaism, especially in Perkei Avot, they talk about the fact that one should never do uh, keep the Torah, teach the Torah for personal honor or for uh, monetary reward, which is really funny because it's exactly what chapter 6 is about. The first half is about personal honor, showing off, and the second half is about where is your reward and money, basically. And then chapter 7, he's going to kind of bring it home, and the first half of chapter 7 is basically a exceptionally good, like, 18-verse 
1615-verse commentary on a puny, tiny little piece of Leviticus, which is that love your neighbor as yourself and the surrounding verses. So basically we learn about judging and loving in chapter 7. And then at the end of chapter 7, Yeshua really brings it back around again and comes back home to talk about fruit. So basically, at the end of chapter 7, as he finishes up his sermon, he's going back to the beginning to emphasize that what you do is what's going to matter. It's not the things that you say. It's not the themes that you, you know, demonstrate in your life in terms of the way that you, who you hang out with or what you associate with. It's about the things and actions you actually do and, who you're, and whose teachings you're following. So chapter 5, focusing on hypocrisy, really. Chapter 6 is focusing on where is your reward? Is it with people? Is it with money? Is it with God? And chapter 7 begins with a kind of a judging and loving theme and then ends with talking about fruit. So that's just an overview, real quick, of the whole sermon. It's easy to see how, how the traditional way of looking at Sermon on the Mount, just from what you wrote even, could, could devolve into a theological treatise as mm-hmm. opposed to a a Practice. standard and practical, you mm-hmm. know, because basically, I mean, we'll look at it. People are always going, I wonder what it means to be blessed is the poor. I mean, think about the sermons you've heard about this. I, I mean, we can go on and on and on, and it's like, everybody kind of knows what it's, you know, poor in spirit. Come up, all you have to do is define what it is, everybody kind of says, yeah, yeah, I kind of know what that is. <laughs> you really don't need to go further, but they want to make it a really We don't need deal. 40 minutes on that one. Yeah, so, so and, and the reason why, of course, is because they're trying to turn it into something theological. Because if you make it theological, it's ethereal. Right. If it's theological, you it's ethereal, it's spiritual. I don't feel guilty when I walk out and I don't do it. Right. Because right. I feel really good about it. I agree with it. Poor in spirit means I recognize that I need God to save me. That's it. So I'm doing that one. Good. So good now I don't have to feel guilty when I don't. That's right. Right. So that's another thing. Before we jump in here now, one more piece of literary context for Yeshua and Judaism in general. Judaism loves to use extreme examples. Uh, you know, lifeboat ethics kind of stuff. Talmud is full of those kind of scenarios. I mean, they find the most obscure, unusual, bizarre ideas. Like, whoever beats that? The idea is, if you can apply the halakha for that, then you can apply it to everything that's less extreme. If if this is bad, then well, surely anything less, I mean, you know, on the other side of that is worse, right? So you basically set the extreme so that you can you can define the edges of your of your argument and it's and it, essentially you it's not it's almost like uh, the opposite of a straw man instead of picking out the weak point and saying well here's here's what we really don't believe in you pick the most extreme point in order to make like the outlier which is what the supreme court is supposed to do western jurisprudence is built upon taking the extremes and then defining the current example to fit that right yeah and unfortunately, I mean, unfortunately, we don't really understand that concept of the Supreme Court certainly doesn't seem to these days. Um, Lawyers are supposed to understand it because that's where it comes from. But with Yeshua, we miss the point a lot on this one because Yeshua oftentimes will use extreme phrases. We get into the Beatitudes. He's going to drop some bombshells. And if, you, if we got kind of inoculated to it because we've heard it so much, but if you really sit and think about it, it's like, whoa, he just said that. And the point he's trying to make is to, is to use that as an extreme example, get your attention, and then let's think about how that applies to everything behind that extreme example. Where we get into trouble, unfortunately, is we either A, dismiss it as hyperbole, 
and so therefore we don't actually consider what he's really saying. Or, on occasion, we take it as a starting point and not as an extreme. And all of a sudden, the Sermon on the Mount is about being a peacenik who has no money and who lets people shoot their family without stepping in the way. Because that's what a real, you know, loving Christian should be. Well, you know, we end up with blessed are the persecuted instead of blessed are the persecuted for righteousness. So the point that I'm trying to get at is that we need to keep that in mind. Watch for the extremes. Let them shock you. But let them also keep that as sort of the outlier of his point. He's not necessarily trying to say you need to find things more extreme than that. He's saying, this is the boundary. This is where you need to stop. But, think, but at the same time, hopefully don't lose sight of that because you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's just an extreme. Because the idea is to get you to go, whoa. And the first one, well, I tell you, he doesn't take any, any time to build into this. It says he goes up on a mountain, which, by the way, if you study the Torah, you're, that's just replete with references. He's on a mountain. Moses is always on a mountain. Um, he goes up on a mountain. His disciples came to him. So first off, we've got him teaching disciples. Oddly enough, the context of the chapter does not describe it as a sermon for the crowds. It's really aimed at his disciples. Um, the crowds apparently come along and listen, and it doesn't seem like he excludes them, but he's focused on his disciples, which means that, number one, he's focusing on people who definitely understand more of him, and they also really understand, um, they've been listening to his teachings, they've been following around, they're probably pretty good when it comes to getting the Jewish imagery, getting the theological concepts he's describing, thinking about the scripture references he's, he's alluding to. So that's why I say at the beginning, we need to know Judaism in order to understand the Sermon on the Mount, because Yeshua is assuming that you're Jewish disciples of a Jewish rabbi. If you're not that, then you're going to probably miss some stuff. Obedience. <laughs> right. Right. So that's the starting point. But then, as soon as we get in, rather than saying, here are the points that I would like you to get in my sermon today, we're going to do this, this, and this. He doesn't open with a joke. His very first words are blessed, are the poor in spirit. Now, in any context, that should be eye-catching. Because in every part, really everywhere except for maybe certain um, Indian cultures, uh, by subcontinent India, and certain New Age cultures, poor is never a good thing. Like being poor, no one wants to be poor. Poor is, poor is lowly. Poor is, is meaning, missing out on stuff. Poor is not being able to support yourself. And he specifically says poor in spirit, which is even weirder. If you think about it, it's like, aren't I supposed to be strong in spirit? Maybe poor in flesh, but strong in spirit, right? Well, first off... Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tip my hat a little bit to a Christian teacher that I do think did a pretty decent job in, in summarizing some of the Beatitudes, and that is Kay Arthur from Precept Ministries. She has some really good points because she was focusing on the scriptures that it ties into as opposed to trying to fit it into theology that she'd grown up with. Um, and poor in spirit is actually a really key phrase or, or alluded phrase throughout the Tanakh. And one of the very first times you see it uh, shows up in Psalm 51, where David is talking to God after his sin with Bathsheba, and he says, The sacrifices of God are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So what's the blessing of the poor in spirit? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they have this um, proximity relationship to God. Uh, kingdom of heaven uh, is, at the very least, God's domain, but also, if, if you've 
um, see my dad's Matthew study, uh, heaven is oftentimes an allusion to God himself. It's a, it's a circumlocution for the word God. So we've got this relationship built in with God. So that's, by the way, that's Psalm 51, verse 17. Um, so the next reference we want to pull up, if somebody can do this one for me, it's going to be in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. Again. Okay. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I draw in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. You see the theme? Again, we've got where does God dwell, and who dwells with him? Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. One more reference, and then we'll, we'll move on here. Um, if you go over to Isaiah 66, this is the last chapter in Isaiah. If someone would read verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Again, humility seems to be the theme associated for being poor in spirit. So I think when you look at the phrase poor in spirit, um, I believe Yeshua is tying it into these references that we've pulled up, and there are probably more than that as well. But the, 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 the focus, though, is definitely on humility. That is the character trait that we're emphasizing here. And uh, that, by the way, is totally Jewish. I mean, extremely so. In fact, if you go into um, Ramkal, speaking of Ramkal, and look at Meselat Yasharim, humility is one of the last traits that you develop because it's so huge. It's a really big deal. It's very hard to master. And he recognizes that. But he sets it in a place of, of quite a bit of prestige in his list of ideal traits to acquire. Um, in fact, I think that honestly, as we get into the third, I'm going to skip briefly the second of the Beatitudes and tie in the meek, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I think that the, the concept behind meek, some people translate gentle, some people translate other types of things like that. Um, meek is not weak. The point is that meek and poor in spirit, I think, are related. Poor in spirit is your humility before God. It's, a, it's your attitude towards God. Um, and it plays out in actions, in a lot of ways, in gentleness, in meekness. And a proof I have for that is that when you look at Judaism's teachings on humility, they very rarely talk about feeling bad about yourself. That's really not the point. Um, a lot of it has to do with how you act around other people. And some examples that I, uh, we've got pulled up here. Um, in Ramkal, again, Meselat Yasharim, uh, as far as one's, this is talk about humility, as far as one's manner of sitting is concerned, a person, a person should see to it that his place is among the lowly and not among the high. In this too, scripture is explicit. Proverbs 25, 6. Do not glorify yourself before a king and do not stand in the place of the great. Along the same lines, our sages of blessed memory said in Vayikra Rabbah 1, 5, withdraw two or three levels from your place so they will say to you, come forward, rather than go forward and be told, get back. Which also sounds like another one of Yeshua's teachings. Yeah. Um, but again, what does this have to do with, uh, you get this, this sense of humility, but the humility is expressed in action. It's expressed where you sit, 
This is expressed with how you, where you put yourself, how you, how you um, display yourself to others. Um, another example that ties in with gentleness and humility, also from Ramkal, same chapter. He quotes from Sota 40a in saying, Rab Abahu said, at first I thought I was humble. But when I saw that Rab Abba of Akko gave one reason and his interpreter another, and he still did not become angry, I said to myself, I am not humble. His point being that your ability, and Ramkal talks about this, your ability to bear insults, to be able to deal with it when people don't treat you well, they don't do what you deserve. Well, when you handle that well, that shows humility, because it means that at the very least, you either don't consider yourself worthy of that good of treatment, or you recognize that you're just another guy. So that person treated you badly. Oh well. It's much easier to, uh, you know, defray praise when, when people offer and go, "Wow, wow, it was really nothing," you know. Right. You look humble when you do that. It's much <laughs> different when somebody goes, "You idiot," and you still bow to that. Right. That's much more difficult, and that yeah. actually is the. It's where you want to rear up. That's right. Oh yeah. Uh, interesting thing when when you Matthew does such a great job of making this all very poetic. But Luke, taking the same discussion, really does, as you, as you say, chapter 5 was, things are not what they seem. Right, right, right. Luke does a really good job of showing these are, not, these are great qualities of where else, but he actually expands it to the point where it's no longer poetic. But it's kind of like, hey, look, right now it's this, but in the world to come it'll be this. Right. If you're poor now, you'll be rich in the world right. to come. If you're rich now, well, you've had a nice run, but you know that doesn't mean anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he actually almost seems to say, blessed are the poor. Literally, just the poor. Right. Just the poor. Yeah. And then blessed... Because, because he turns around and says, if you're rich and well-fed, you. you're receiving your comfort now. What right. you? Enjoy it. Well, yeah. It's a good time. And to that point, though, I don't think it's all about like, material comforts. It's the idea that if you're lacking financially, I, I don't like to use the word poor, but if, if in this case, just specifically related monetarily, if you're lacking financially, it puts you in a place where you are entirely dependent upon Hashem to provide for mm. you. True. Rather than well, you, know, you should your, be that way Rather than your own handiwork. And well, yeah. To your point, though, you're constantly reminded of it. Um, whereas. When someone's wealthy, it's easy to get comfortable, and just like after the Birkat Hamazon, you know, what's the last thing you want to do after you've got a nice full stomach? It's like, hmm, I think I'm going to bless God now. No, you want to, you know, turn over and take a nap because you're, you know, fat and happy, and you're, you know, it's, it's easy to, to become comfortable with those, those worldly um, comforts and things. So, the poor in spirit, and specifically related to being poor monetarily is, you know, it's a great place to be in terms of your faith and realizing that Hashem is providing for me. And it's a constant reminder of that. Right, and there's a key part of humility, as we're talking about here, is humility before God and not just before man. Um, really cool, Rambam, Ramban, excuse me, talk about poor, because Ramban's going to play off of that a little bit here. Uh, his letter to his son, which, by the way, is brilliant and very short. Very, kind of sounds a lot like Yeshua's teachings. Brilliant, but to the point. Um, his letter to his son actually makes humility crucial. So the fact that Yeshua starts with poor and then two steps later goes to gentleness or meekness really fits in well 
with Judaism's understanding of humility. Um, Ramban says, uh, this is quoting from his, from his letter, I will now explain to you how to always behave humbly. By the way, he said that humility is like a key to getting fear of God. So this is like a crucial character trait. Speak gently, there's that word gentle again, at all times with your head bowed, your eyes looking down to the ground, and your heart focusing on Hashem. Don't look at the face of the person to whom you're speaking. Might be a little extreme in today's culture, but the point is acting humbly around other people. Don't look at the, uh, sorry, consider everyone is greater than yourself. If he is wise or rich, you should give him respect. If he is poor um, and you are richer or wiser than he, consider yourself to be more guilty than he, and that he is more worthy than you, since when he sins, it is through error, while yours is deliberate, and you should know better. So the point is, this idea of, of humility before God and humility before man is a central theme in, in Jewish teaching. In fact, uh, in more modern teaching, um, Alephet teacher Rabbi Foreman, uh, in one of his recent teachings on Micah 6.8, he argues that the walk humbly before your God is essential if you're going to properly do the other two elements of that teaching, which is to do justice and love mercy. If you, if, you, if you do those two, you think your life would be all set. But if you don't have the walking humbly before your God segment to kind of glue those two together, you're going to end up shortchanging both. Because you're going to get full of yourself, and you're going to think badly of other people, and you're going to treat them poorly. So that's Yeshua's teaching on humility and gentleness. Like I said, I think they're kind of linked in terms of their application. Um, but as we can see, he's, it's, it's a very Jewish concept. Now, the next one, number two on his list, I know I skipped it, but number two is mourning. Again, another bombshell. Blessed are those who mourn. Moan. Yeah, mourn. Moan. Blessed are those who mourn. <laughs> yeah, that one. I, yeah, that's my humility. I can't spell. Anyway, so the point is that blessed are those who mourn. Doesn't make any sense on the surface. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like you know, I love the translation, you know, some people, some, some kind of not the best translation of the word blessed which can be ashray in Hebrew, is happy. Happy are those who mourn. That doesn't make any sense. But the point is that um, yeah, I think Yeshua, again, is trying to like kind of shock you just a little bit. Um, and he pulls this one up. Now, this is probably one of the first ones that you might actually get some resistance to from people who don't really know Judaism but think they do. They'll probably look at that and say, blessed are those who mourn. Ramban says, we should, or uh, Rach, uh, Nachman says, we should be happy all the time. This is clearly not a Jewish concept. Judaism's not a sad religion. We're not monks who, like, you know, beat ourselves and try to make ourselves, like, depressed all the time. See, Yeshua is clearly, you know, a new religion. But actually, if you look at this context, mourning leads to comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, that is a Jewish concept. Because what did we just do? If you've been following Judaism over the last month... You spent three weeks mourning. There are certain things we don't eat, certain activities we don't engage in. We try, not to make, we try to avoid things to make us happy. We just stop listening to music. Then there are nine days when you get really intense on what you do. And how does that end? The very first Shabbat, after we finish that, Nachamu. We read the passages of comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Mourning leading to comfort is a very strong Jewish concept. In fact, ironically enough, some of the, um, I would say probably a bunch of, if not a majority of, the followers of Rabbi Nachman and his happiness um, teaching actually intentionally build in monthly mourning. Because there's a Yom Kippur Katan service you do right before uh, Rosh Kodesh, Erev Rosh Kodesh, in which you fast and repent. And then Rosh Kodesh, 
is a time of happiness and feasting. So again, we've got mourning leading to comfort. You remember the, in, in, uh, in Zechariah, we get those fast days. Judaism, by the way, talk about a religion that, that understands mourning. They fast like crazy all over throughout the year. Um, in, uh, in Zechariah, Yeshua, uh, uh, Hashem specifically says that these days of fasting will be turned into festivals of gladness. So again, we've got mourning now, comfort later. That's good. The next one on Yeshua's list is hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, um, I think this is a really interesting and kind of cool anal uh, analogy that he plays. This is the first time that he really, well, the first time, um, I can say it the second time, that he really starts to step into an analogy world. It's not, a, it's not an obvious one. What does it mean to be hungry and thirsting for righteousness? I mean, I almost kind of think of you know, some you know, punk football player yelling and screaming at his teammates, Are you hungry? That's not really what it is. The point is that um, if you look at the scriptures in Tanakh, Eating and God show up quite a bit. One of the very first references to uh, God providing for you with food is in Deuteronomy, which we just got done reading, as part of uh, Parashat Ikev, where Hashem, or Moses, tells the people, God fed you with manna so that you would know that it's not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what do we... What do we get out of this here? That, that idea of hungering and thirsting for the words of God for righteousness is especially true in the Psalms. If you go over to, I mean, it's all over the place. David loves that analogy. You get things like, um, taste and see that the Lord is good. Hey, there's a reference. Uh, some specific references from the Psalms. Let me pull it up real quick. Psalm 63. Yeah, Psalm 63. Psalm 42. Let me get this Psalm 63 in a second. I'm going to order here. 42, 1 through 2. Whoops. Put their pants for water. Yeah, that would be it. 42, 1 through 2. We're having trouble here tonight. There we go. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Again, as you said, Psalm 63. O God, you are my God, I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. In other words, you get this imagery of eating with God, and it, and it really does make sense, because what's Yeshua getting at? Again, we get back to the theme. theme is what looks good isn't good enough. The theme is what's on the inside, real service to God. It's passionate. It's intense. It's not just that you happen to read on Shabbat what the Torah portion says. It's that you hunger. You really want God. You want righteousness. Hmm. And the best analogy that we as humans can understand is food and water. Because you don't just want it. You need yeah. it. And what? you get to a point you have to have it. What were the verses in 63? Oh, I'm so sorry. Two or three, I think. Yeah, that was actually just Psalm. Um, uh, that was just verse 1. 63 verse 1. I think it's also hunger and, hunger and thirst in Scripture. Uh, remember the game where you have the cards and it has a some mechanical thing and you have to guess what it does? Yeah. By looking the, at it. The, uh, uh, Anyways, the idea yeah. is that form follows function. The image cards. That are, uh, so, so you look at it and that kind of tells you what it's for. Right. So form follows function. And hunger and thirst as as terms used throughout scripture follow a function. It means we have a capacity for mm. it. 
So if you're hungry, it means you have a capacity for food. If you're thirsty, it means you have a capacity for drink. Mm -hmm. Needing it makes it almost, almost uh, beyond the point. We're, we are made to be full. Mm. We're made to be mm -hmm. full of water or drink. So if we're hungry and thirsty for righteousness, it means we have a capacity for it. This is, the an, this is the, the antithesis of how this is viewed in traditional Christianity because righteousness is only something that can be applied to you like right. a coat, applied to you like paint. Imputed. Hungry, that's right. Hunger and thirst for righteousness implies we have a capacity for it. In other words, we were made for it. Mm. It's our purpose. Right. But it also means we don't have it all yet. Well, we that's right. Hungry means I got a hole in me and it right. needs to be filled. Right. Thirsty means I <laughs> I need drink and it needs to be filled. But the point here is we're missing the point if we focus on the fact that I'm lacking. Oh, right. That's and that's my right. point about about the way that's traditionally viewed. Right. We're lacking. No, no, no. The point is not we're lacking. The point is we're going Being to hungry get it. and we're going to get we have a capacity for it and we will have it. And Judaism also keys in on this. Um, you get the teachings behind the idea of the Yeser Hara and the Yetzer Hatov. Mm -hmm. And the Yetzer Hatov is the good inclination, the Yetzer Hara is the evil inclination. But if you look at most of Judaism, the Yetzer Hara is evil inclination is really almost a poor translation. A much better translation is more like natural inclination. In other words, most of the Yetzer Hara stuff isn't inherently bad. Right. It's just that it's the things that you crave is the things that you which want. Is, which is why we're taught not to kill the Yetzer Hara, but to control it. Control it. And now that's a very difficult challenge. So, so the best example of this actually is, according to tradition, is Isaac. Judaism teaches that Isaac, the strong one, he was the one who actually defeated the Yetzer Hara and bent it to serve Hashem. So that when he it says that he craved meat in, in Genesis, the sages say that's not a bad thing. They say that he was actually using his food in the service of God. And one of the um, one example of that would be like when he offers to bless uh, Jacob towards the end. He thinks it's Esau. Um, he asks for food so that my soul may bless you. In other words, he's taking those good feelings and translating them into the service of God. Cool. So that yeah. hunger and thirst uh, is almost like you want to take that yetzer hara inclination of I need food, I need sex, I need water, I need sleep, and you want to translate that urge into holiness. I need God. I need righteousness. I need his word. That's the idea behind hunger and thirst. Again, very Jewish concept, replete throughout the scriptures. The next one on the list um, is pure in heart. You also see that in Psalm 51. Right, exactly. I was just about to go there. Um, in Psalm 51, he, uh, David actually does a lot of references to purity in, in the inside in Psalm 51. Um, That's the one he wrote, composed right after the Bathsheba incident. So again, we're talking about inside changing, which is interesting because he does a very external sin with adultery, but his focus is on the inside. His focus is on what, what you need to do on the inside. I guess you alone have I sinned. You alone have I sinned. When he contrasts what he's done with what God expects of him in verse 6. This is Psalm 51, verse 6. He says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Uh, then he says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. So we can get purity, we got internal 
um, righteousness. Then verse 10, he follows up by saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So that pure heart is associated with presence. And that's important because what does Yeshua say? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see that parallel in Psalm 24 as well, when it says, Who may stand in the presence of Hashem, who may dwell on his mountain, who has, who has a clean hands and pure heart, and has not sworn by my name and deceit before you. And he, yeah. Absolutely. That was on my list. Way to go. Yeah. Um, and again, that's ascending to the hill of the Lord. So, in other words, who can be in the presence of God? The person has a pure heart. So, we're, again, Yeshua is getting deep here. He's going into, and I think pure heart, what does that mean? Um, I think there's a number of different possible definitions for that. One, of course, is just natural purity. Sexual immorality in Judaism is a huge no-no. I mean, it's like one of the primary ways that you divorce yourself from God. Paul also emphasizes that as well. But Judaism in particular really, really punches in on this one, including, interestingly enough, sexual immorality that doesn't involve any other person. Um, Judaism has extremely intense teachings against masturbation and, those, and immoral thoughts because those types of things are, I mean, they, they, they almost treat it as worse than adultery mm -hmm. in, in a way. It is. Um, and the idea, again, it's, it's separating you from God and it's, it's undermining that relationship. On top of that, purity also, um, as you see in the scriptures, this idea of purity can also refer to the concept of like double-mindedness. Like, I want to serve God, but I also want to, want to serve this other thing at the same time, and trying to do both. Romans 7. Romans 7, but you also get Yetzirah, Yetzirah Tov kind of going on there, but then you also got um, Elijah. He looks at all the people and goes, how long will you waver between two opinions? If he's God, follow him. If Hashem is God, follow him. The point being, that if you want to see God, if you want to connect with God, you have to be pure in heart, which means you have to be focused on God. And that's a big deal, because again, we're, Yeshua's not, he's not cutting corners here. He's getting deep. He's hitting those things that you think to, I mean, we probably, we're gonna, you're going to get more in, later on in chapter 5, but it's like, okay, um, there are certain things we probably don't do. You know, okay, I don't, I don't commit homosexuality. All right, I'm good. I'm pure in heart. Well, that's pure in body. But pure in heart's a different matter. Am I looking at things I shouldn't? Am I thinking about things that I shouldn't? Am I getting distracted from Hashem? You know, these are, these are the types of things Yeshua's hitting at. The next one is peacemaker. And this is where I really want to, like, spend some time um, on a possible drosh off of Yeshua's teaching. Um, if you look at the, in, look in traditional Judaism, the sages oftentimes would comment on the other sages' teachings. And they would pull stuff all the time from, and it was said in this place, but we know that this word is also used over here. And so the point that we can get from this scripture passage is this point. And the idea is that they're using not only scripture to, to create commentaries, they're actually using other commentaries as reliable understandings of God's word to then comment further on a scripture passage to help kind of highlight another piece. I think if we start to study Yeshua close enough, deep enough, with enough intensity, that we can start to do that with his stuff too. And that's pretty cool. So it's not just what Yeshua is saying on the surface level, but also maybe what he could be alluding to on a, on a lower level. And even if it's not necessarily what he intended per se, it is still a truth that's, a, that's apparent from his teaching. So we can kind of use it to teach us something. So peacemaker and son. Now, here's where it starts to get cool. Who is the greatest peacemaker? Aaron. 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 
Gregory has just named his son Aaron in light of that incredible honor of being the greatest peacemaker. Great peace between Sophie and Zoe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, peacemaker is Aaron. Now here's what's interesting about Aaron. What else is Aaron? Priest. He's a high priest. But you know what's funny is he wasn't supposed to be high priest according to Jewish tradition. Who was supposed to be Jew- who was supposed to be the high priest or the priests in general? Israel. Right, Israel. But which specifically of Israel? Firstborn. The firstborn sons. They were to be the free priests. Amen. Problem. Firstborn sons do a no-no. They worship the golden calf. As a result of this collapse, this implosion on their part, Hashem takes the priesthood away from them and he gives it to the Levites, who are the only group that ultimately ends up following God. But here's where there's a big question and rather confusing point. Who made the golden calf? Aaron. Aaron. But Aaron's not only going to get to keep his priesthood, which the firstborn sons did not get to keep, Aaron gets to be high priest. He's the top of the top. How how could this be? Now, it makes a whole lot more sense if you look at Yeshua's teaching. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons, like firstborn sons, like priests of God. In other words, if you read in the scriptures, and I believe this book of Proverbs, it talks about the idea that um, forgiveness overcomes a multitude of sins. In other words, if you are willing to fix problems in this world, that ends up giving you a significant amount of, of, of favor and of merit before God. It's a big deal to make peace between other people. So Aaron is the king peacemaker. He's the number one. And he gets to remain priest in spite of the fact that he does, well, he's attached to, at least, the same sin that cost the firstborn. Why? As a peacemaker, he is a son of God. So that's what, I think that's, I hope that gets you excited, like, Whoa, I never thought about like the things we could learn from Yeshua's teachings that apply to the Torah. So the last one. I'm oh, sorry, I made this one versatile. And of course he's the son and he's the ultimate peacemaker. Right. He's also the son and the ultimate peacemaker. Um, not the last one, but the uh, uh, second to last one. Merciful, blessed are the merciful. Um, Judaism, again, emphasizes mercy. It's huge, massive. The prophets are littered with mercy. It's extremely important. In fact, um, in that Ramkal reference we had earlier, uh, he makes a comment on in humility, uh, and he quotes our, our sages of blessed memory, or Chazal, as, as saying, in, uh, Whose sins does he forgive? The sins of those who overlook the wrong committed against them. In other words, to be merciful, to treat someone better than they deserve, especially if they've hurt you, is a, is a godlike quality. And it's something that God repays with forgiveness back to you. He treats you the same way you treat others. Now, on top of that, we also see that mercy is a critical component of, and when Judaism looks at who Israel should be. Um, in uh, Midrash Rabbah, for a kev that we just got through, it actually talks about the idea that mercy itself is actually a gift from God to the people of Israel. In other words, it's a huge quality. It's a godlike quality. It's a godlike quality that in some ways should define Israel. It's part of who they are. And in fact, today, actually, sometimes to their, to their fault, you could almost say, Jews have a phenomenal capacity to show mercy and, 
and compassion to people who aren't treated particularly well and who aren't particularly popular. Unfortunately today, that sometimes gets expressed in a somewhat pro-homosexual bent, or at least supportive. But in the past, it was also a big reason why African Americans actually connected with Jews. Because Jews recognized the racism that they were facing, and they treated them as, as good people. They treated them with, uh, with honor and respect. They mm -hmm. tend to have that compassionate, merciful nature in them, at least when it comes to the, to the downtrodden. And the Torah teaches us that we need to treat the strangers well because we were strangers. Absolutely. So if you think about what we're talking about, the problem, what's the main problem in the first century? Baseless hatred. What's one of the best ways to stop that? Being merciful. Hmm. So Yeshua finds that to be one of his you know, top, top ten, so to speak. The last one we're going to look at is persecuted. And I mentioned, I alluded to this earlier when I said that, unfortunately, it's oftentimes translated, blessed are the persecuted. Um, I have to say there's very few religions that like being persecuted as much as Christianity seems to. Um, it's, almost, it's almost like a badge of honor. And I, and, I, and I don't say this in a good way. I mean, I think that and there are people who, who bear it well, and their humility is, is, is exceptional. But unfortunately, sometimes it's almost like you need to be persecuted. If I'm not in that people's face enough to get them angry at me, I must be doing something wrong. That's not what God's saying. That's not definitely not what Yeshua's saying. The persecuted comes for righteousness sake. Where Christianity has done a very good job are those of their followers who have actually died or are persecuted for doing the right thing. And they responded appropriately. Judaism, by the way, is littered with this. I mean, oh my goodness, the entire religion since the day it was founded practically has been persecuted. They've been mistreated by every single people group practically on the planet. Um, and faith. And faith. And it's almost always because of their faith. It's because of righteousness. Um, I think one of the things that, I think the key to understanding what Yeshua is really trying to get at with this particular one is when he ties in, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because I think what he's getting at is, okay, if you've done all of the previous things, merciful, peacemaker, pure in heart, you're going to think to yourself, my life's going to be great. I'm a good guy. Everybody should like me. Everything should be perfect. I should, God will bless me. But what Yeshua is getting at is the, the unfortunate reality in this world that the righteous sometimes suffer. In fact, oftentimes the righteous suffer. And so when I was talking about this with Juliana, I was like, what's Yeshua really getting here? And she's, she reminded me that Judaism teaches that you get your reward in the world to come. Right. The wicked get the reward in this world. So the people who are being mean, and the people who are cheating, and the people who are immoral, they're flooded with money, they're healthy, they look great, they're popular. And the people that are doing the right thing, a lot of times they're poor, they're, they're not liked very much. They, sometimes they have to make huge sacrifices in order to keep their faith. Well, that doesn't make sense, it doesn't work. But I think Yeshua is getting at is, don't worry, the reward is coming. So if you do all these other things and you think to yourself, it didn't work, I'm persecuted. That's not a bad thing. He says, for so the prophets who came before you. In other words, you get, you're you joining a long line of righteous people who have been persecuted. Company. Right. <laughs> yes, sir. I, I, absolutely. The, the, the righteous for righteousness sake could be pretty much all-inclusive. And certainly, you know, there, we, we, can have, we have a history of, of godly men and women who have been persecuted, uh, like you say, Jews for millennia, 
Luke drills down even deeper, though, and he actually he defines righteousness for you because he says, for the sake of the Son of Man, mm-hmm. which is actually even narrower. And so what we, what we can see is that we will be persecuted for righteousness, just like you know people who don't know Yeshua have been persecuted for righteousness. Mm-hmm. But, if, but the, real, the real meat of it is to be persecuted for Messiah. Right. That actually is his point in the idea that, you know, if we're talking about proximity to the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the middle, the center, where he is. Right. So to be persecuted for righteousness' sake is, is, you know, it's huge. But to be persecuted for the sake of Messiah. Right. So when we start now, when we start naming names, they're much, they're much fewer. You know, and I'm not just talking about Fox's Book of Martyrs. We're, you know, we're talking about Yeshua's disciples, and this is who he's speaking to. Right. So he's speaking to the, speaking to them, and this is his instructions to them. He'd say, "You're going to be persecuted for my sake, and yours is the kingdom of heaven." This is like this is like Matthew 16. The keys to the kingdom are are given to you because you have been persecuted for my sake. Now it's Paul. It's the disciples. And there's there's still, you know, scores and scores, thousands of people through the history that have fallen into this category. But they're the ones that are at the center of the group mm-hmm. because it was for Messiah's sake that they were persecuted. And he actually loses that. He actually says that in Matthew chapter five. He says, "Best of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake," and then later says, "On account of me." So that idea is definitely there. <clears throat> if you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Today, in this room, that probably looks like maybe you couldn't get that business you wanted because it came on Shabbat. Maybe you couldn't do uh, get that promotion you wanted because they require you to work Friday nights. But if you're persecuted for in this room, you're probably also very much so persecuted because of him. They won't let you into the group to go pray in the synagogue. They won't let you do certain types of traditions and the types of things because of him. Not because you're getting the righteousness thing wrong. You're probably doing it better than a lot of people in the room. But you've got one, one factor that makes you different and makes it a problem. Which is, which is not a badge of pride, but, is, no. but it is a, but is a finding ourselves in good company. An effective way. That's right. Mm-hmm. He, he, he does say uh, in 11, on my account. Mm-hmm. But you know, to Rick's point, in the very next verse in 12, without having to go to Luke, Rejoice and be glad for your Lord is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I don't think that his point here is just that they were persecuted for righteousness' sake, but that they were persecuted for righteousness' sake and his sake. That's right. Mm -hmm. Because it is clear as we read the scriptures, those prophets saw him. Mm -hmm. Abraham saw him. Mm. They knew him. That's part of what mainline Judaism has decided to skip the fact that they did know Messiah. Right. And actually, if you look at speaking of Judaism... Of course, Christianity chooses to <laughs> avoid that as well. They, they unfortunately also the church, other path. Otherwise, the church started earlier. Right. Um, but the Judaism, um, as a monolithic entity, we can even ever call it that, um, has dismissed Yeshua as Messiah. But they have members who have adhered to Yeshua as Messiah. Absolutely. And they have suffered. They still do. Yeah. So and certainly, and verbatim. Like, I mean, we know the Book of Acts is full of it. Right. Uh, 
But on top of that, on top of that, for me, you know, my life's wonderful, and I've never been persecuted. I mean, this is the way. God bless you. Um, my life's wonderful. I've never been persecuted. Probably a lot like that man. We're like, like, life's grand. How you know? How does this apply to me? We need to remember that it's persecution is not necessarily always, always uh, um, embraced as if we are. Um, we we don't put on the sackcloth because we're persecuted. In other words, we don't go. You know, wow, I've been so persecuted. Sometimes, sometimes we are being persecuted, and we don't, we don't, uh, we don't wear that mantle. We we smile, we we go about our way. We don't we don't make people feel guilty because you persecuted me. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. So it's almost like you have to be very careful that even though we are persecuted for right for His sake, that we don't beat people up over it. What does he say? He says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Exactly. So so our demeanor is not necessarily that we're persecuted. Uh, it may be a fact that we're persecuted, but we don't dwell on the fact that we're persecuted. Well, and, and even back to you know what he was saying earlier, we, we don't need to let everybody know. No. Right? So, so I'll give you an example. You use the idea of the synagogue, because I think that's fitting for the disciples in this time. Not right now, but later on in Acts, we're going to see it happen. Not much later. So, so, so when, when I'm excluded... I'm, it's okay, man. I'm, I'm totally fine with it. I'm totally fine with that. It's it's not a, oh man, you know, they're picking on me. Otherwise, we're going to have a tendency to treat those who persecute right. us not as enemies necessarily, but at, at least mm-hmm. as opponents. Mm-hmm. Sure and we should not. Yeah. We must say, okay, that's that's great. You know, I mean, I'm totally fine with, you right. know, if you don't want to include me in that prayer, I'm totally fine with that. I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I'm not going to stand up and say, hey, listen, it's my God, too, and I have a... I'm not going right. to do that. I'm going to say, this is fine. I'm totally fine. You know, it's, it's interesting you mention that because we have an example of that later on in the, in the Gospels. You have the, the Phoenician woman who shows up to Yeshua, and she says, my, my daughter is sick, and you should heal, him, heal her. And he responds by saying... You're a dog. Why would I give the bread for the children to the dogs? Her response is, even the dogs that lick the crumbs off the table. In awesome. other words, the point is... I'll take anything. Awesome. I, don't, I don't need special treatment. I don't need to even be equal. Just, just give me something. And I think that needs that. You know, in the beginning, we started with poor in spirit, and we're ending with persecuted. Yeshua is basically dropping bombshells here. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the persecuted. What kind of a lifestyle is this? But this is a place of blessing. But it's only a place of blessing when when you really start to live out what that transforms on the inside. If you're just persecuted, even if you're persecuted for the right reasons, you're not going to be very blessed if you're bitter and you're frustrated right. and you're angry. That's because right. you know what we're getting back to again? Baseless hatred. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Even if it has more of a basis this time. We still don't want to do that. <laughs> it's base hatred. <laughs> yeah. The point is that Yeshua is arguing this whole way through against the division within Judaism. The last thing he's trying to do is to create an us versus them within Judaism. Right. So the persecuted point, even though I, brought, I bring up that example today because we experienced that, I hope that everyone in this room is ta- it doesn't just simply you know, shrug it off when it comes to their reaction, re- interaction with, with Judaism. I hope that they completely ignore it. Uh, basically, you should, you should look at Judaism as your brother. In fact, more so. Because they've got the oracles of God. Hmm. They're, they're the chosen people of God. 
the fact that you even get to be in the outside of the room it's okay. is amazing. Yeah, it's okay. Well, I think, you know, you brought up the Phoenician woman, and she, really, I think her example is extraordinary because her response indicated not so much position. If I recall the passage properly, um, she had to kind of bug him for a little bit before he acknowledged her. And, and I think, you know, to, Rick, to your point, when, when the Jews today don't want us to be apart or choose to deliberately leave us out, to me, the, the proper response is to feel the joy that they've at least acknowledged that you are there, <laughs> which is really where she was coming from. You've acknowledged that I exist. Right. That's all I was looking for. Crumbs are fine. and You're already leaving, and the crumbs are all that's left. You didn't sweep up the crumbs. I get the crumbs. You've acknowledged. You've spoken to me. That's good. I'm yeah. thrilled. <laughs> right? That's a really you good have acknowledged that I am. And really, if, if as you pointed out in the beginning, we're to get our perspective with God right and our perspective with man right, isn't that really what God promises for me? He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and believe that he is, that he exists. We acknowledge that he's there. That's the beginning. And if we can come to the persecution options with that acknowledgement mm -hmm. that, hey, at least you recognize that I am here, that there is a, a messianic flavor to your faith. You know, then, then, you know, yeah, it's true. Principle. They've been ignoring Gentiles for centuries. That's exactly right. Or running from them. Right? <laughs> you know, as we're um, following with axes. I'll give this to you because my hand is, is blue now. Um, now the blue hand. But then, uh, real quick before we, we wrap up here, next week we'll be focusing on the latter half of chapter 5, which I'm hoping to be able to get all the way through because there's a lot there. Um, and so what we're going to do is if you could just this week read through chapter 5, you want to read more than that, great, get more context. But again, five is the focus. Just kind of be thinking and be thinking about like cross references, be thinking about things that this reminds you of. Because um, there's some really cool stuff as we start to dig in. We got a lot of scripture references for the Beatitudes. Delving in after that, a little bit less scripture, but a lot of really cool Midrash and, and Perkei Vote and other Jewish ethical types things. So cool. it's going to be good. Hey, thank you. O Adonai, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for the words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil, and receive reward, and they toil, and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But for us, but as, but as, for us, we will trust in you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Joshua. That was very nice. Outstanding. Well done.